Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Wax On. Um, this is our, our seventh uh, listening club. I always say, and it's great to see so many people here. I always say that this is, we're lending each other our ears and we kind of get to listen again to some music that maybe is so worn smooth from having been listened to so many times. And you get to borrow everyone else's ears to, to, to hear it afresh. Um, and uh, you know, every time I do an intro, because we've, we've done Miles Davis, we've done Wayne Shorter, every time I do an intro, I feel like I'm running out of superlatives about the, the musicians that I'm talking about. But Duke Ellington is really the trunk of the tree for jazz. Um, Miles Davis said that you could tell the, the, the history of jazz in four words, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. And as far as he was concerned, so for all of the guys and like for, for the for the modern generation that, that come out of uh, after Bop, the, it, they all looked to Duke Ellington and, and it, it wasn't just the music. It was that, that Duke Ellington presented a, a, an example of how to be an artist for, for black musicians in America, how to be an artist. And it was the way he dressed, the way he comported himself, the way he treated his musicians. He, he kind of set the standards in, in jazz that, that everyone followed. Um, so, and there, now, and there are maybe people here who will be able to correct me on some of the, the details, Willie Fagan, I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, but, and Alan Smith. And, uh, but uh, as far as I can make out, what most people say is that there is more Ellington recordings than there are of any other jazz musician. And that's interesting given that he died in 74 before recording became so ubiquitous. Um, so it's very hard to, to kind of dig into it and, uh, and do anything that's representative. So I'm sure there'll be, there'll be tracks that you feel that, that we should have played and that we didn't. And I, I asked uh, Ben here, our sound man, to be playing uh, Bre uh, Black, Brown and Beige as we came in because I think that's a beautiful thing, but you're not going to hear it again, so I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> and, of course, what we hope to do with, with this is to stimulate you to go and uh, listen yourselves, because all we can do is the, the very briefest of, uh, of skims across the, the, the Ellington um, canon. Um, joining me this evening to, uh, to talk about this are two guys that know a little bit about how to make a, a band sound good. Um, this is uh, Paul Donnelly, uh, trombonist from Cork, our finest trombonist. Uh, uh, Paul uh, uh, runs the, the New Irish Jazz Orchestra, and so um, he's a man with a big phone bill. Um, and Paul also runs the, the, the gigs in the, in, the, in the Crane Lane in Cork, so he's really a, a major part of making music happen in, in, uh, in Cork. He has, a, he has his own quintet who are playing in Arthur's Thursday week, the 31st. So do go and check that out. That's with, um, we were just talking about this great new uh, uh, tenor player who's on the scene, um, Ben Castle uh, from London. Um, who else is in the band, Paul? Uh, Leo Paulo Osio. Leo Osio, yeah. Right. Brilliant. So uh, that's Paul Donnelly. Um, yes. 
Um, th this man next to me is um, Fiacre Trench, uh, one of our most eminent uh, rangers. Uh, I was just uh, looking down uh, Fiacre's credit list, and it really is pretty starry. Uh, Fiacre has uh, arranged for uh, the Boomtown Rats, the Pogues, Elvis Costello, Art Garfunkel, Sinead O'Connor, Joan Armatrading, and Paul McCartney, to name but a few. Uh, and uh, Fiacre also uh, plays some beautiful piano uh, uh, with his wife. He has a lovely project at the moment with uh, Flo McSweeney and his wife Carmen McRae singing some beautiful uh, jazz standards. So if you see that coming up anywhere close to you, you want to check that out. This is Fiacre Trench. <laughs> so um, we, we, we do this vaguely chronologically, but I, I actually wanted to start, we'll just, we'll just get something out of the way first, which is we're going to play the tune that is probably most associated with Ellington. And this is a version from uh, 1940, when Ellington would, you would really have said that that's the, the height of the, the band's prowess, and um, that you're going to hear uh, Johnny Hodges and Ben Webster and uh, Jimmy Blanton on the bass, Sonny Greer on the drums, the classic Ellington band. So classic that often it's called the Webster Blanton Band. Uh, and this is, well, I'm not going to introduce it. We're just going to play it. You know what this is. Volume. Thank you. 
anybody in this room who never heard that tune before. No, I mean, it would be impossible to have been alive in the last 50 years and not have heard that a million times. That is, of course, is uh, Take the A-Train by Billy Strayhorn. Um, Paul, I was saying that, you know, I mean, one of the things about Ellington was like how he treated his musicians and the fact that guys stayed with him for so long and, and that in some ways the name Duke Ellington is a, a kind of a, a catch-all for a group of musicians that stayed together and played together. Yeah, absolutely. And there, were, there, weren't, there weren't just any musicians either. They were all completely hand-picked and augmented over time by someone who was probably going to add a different colour than the previous person. Or there was obviously people that died along the way really young and like people taken with tuberculosis and all that kind of crap but yeah um like a train is one of the most uh, uh, not even just big band tunes or ever it's one of the most played standards ever yeah. you know like i don't think there's a musician in the room who hasn't played it at some point uh, i'm probably sick to death of playing in the jam sessions really at this at this stage but um yeah it's 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 obviously the the directions that Duke Ellington gave to straight on to his gaff. I'm from Cork, we say gaff. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm really bad at this. Uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're dead right. Like, like, he wrote for, even though this arrangement and the tune was by Billy Strayhorn, like, essentially, Duke Ellington wrote for what he had. Well, th this is what I was getting at because you, you you work with the same musicians all the time, and and, and I mean that's the ideal it's, is it's, that you it's, get it's, to work with the yeah. same guys. Yeah. And Ellington always knew, and Strayhorn when he was arranging for him knew who he was, who was going to be playing the part, and the parts were written with that in mind. And it, it was kind of it was unusual to to keep a band together that much, and. Uh, and, and I think you can say that that's kind of very much why the band always sounded so good because everyone was playing a part that was written for them. But uh, Duke looked after his musicians so well and he was one of the best players in the business and th obviously that helps keep them loyal, doesn't it? Sorry, <laughs> sorry for my cynicism. But <laughs> no, you're right. And I mean, but I think that it's a tribute to him as an artist that, I mean, and you, you see many... Uh, I should also say this, if you want to see uh, interviews with Duke Ellington, there are thousands of them you, uh, on YouTube. If you search for Duke Ellington, you'll see lots of him talking about it. And his, his attitude was that I'll, I'll, as long as I can afford to keep the band on the road, I'll keep the band on the road. And he didn't reap huge financial rewards himself. The money that he made, he used it to have Cootie Williams on the stage and to have Johnny Hodges on the stage, and to have Paul Gonsalves on the stage. He, and he, that was he subsidized the, the gigs. Of, he was a, his, of his own, own arts council, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, I, the, the A-Train is, a, 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 as probably m many of you know, A-Train was the, 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 the subway train that went up to Harlem. And Harlem is the kind of the epicenter of the, 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 the Ellington story. And, he really is one of the key uh, players in what they would have called the Harlem Renaissance of the, of the, of the 30s and 40s, when and it really important in terms of black culture and in terms of, of elevating jazz, bringing jazz from a cabaret form to an art form. But we're, so we're going to go back to some of the earliest Ellington now and listen to a, a, a track from 1927, um, 
Duke, uh, the, the orchestra got a job in the, the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was, this is during Prohibition, and the Cotton Club was where white folks went to uh, drink uptown. So it, all the, the, the musicians were black and all the audience were, was white, and that was the way the Cotton Club was. And certainly there's, there are patronizing aspects of it, and they called it jungle music. But Duke took that setting and that offer and turned it into art. And uh, we're going to start uh, with this uh, track. And it's, um, this was co-written by Ellington and Barbara Miley, who was his first trumpet player. And Barbara Miley had this technique of uh, growling with the, with the, the trumpet. And um, you're going to hear this. And I, I think the, the thing that I was saying earlier on about fresh ears, this music is, has been plundered so much by movies to conjure you know, certain atmospheres and certain, and jazz is often used to describe if there's sex involved, if there's, you know, if it's alcohol or any sort of badness, it's like, yeah, let's throw in a bit of jazz, you know. So um, this, this particular tune, this is East St. Louis Tudelo, and uh, th 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 this has been endlessly used as theme music for things. Uh, if anybody's familiar with, uh, what do you call it, Steely Dan's record, Pretzel Logic, they even, uh, they did a transcription of East St. Louis uh, Tudelo on, on that. So you've, you've, again, you've probably all heard this before, but let's try and listen with fresh ears this was 1926, 1927, and nobody had heard anything like this before. So this is East St. Louis Tudelo. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
East St. Louis, Trudeau. Yes, Vicar. It's so beautifully arranged. I mean, that, that's what distinguishes that, you know, compared to all the New Orleans jazz that was happening at the time. There's so much of interest happening all the way. And, and I love the fact that the, the limitation of the 78s was three minutes. So Barbara Miley only gets to play one little A section at the end and we're gone. But there's all that beautiful stuff in there. Yeah, you don't get to stretch out with your solos Definitely exactly. Not, yeah. no. Uh, I'm also thinking, uh, Paul, about like the, the way he is kind of, you can, you can kind of hear the seeds of the later work in the way he's, he's arranging the band. Yeah, um, especially, um, I think one of the major criticisms of that tune when it came out, I think from like the classical side of stuff, was that it, it kind of grown to a halt rather than never having a complete ending. So uh, that, 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 I think that was a kind of a, a facet of his earlier tunes, but like, yeah, the, like, I think one of the things was like uh, Duke used to take these little snippets and stuff, but it was actually his arrangement that always, as Vico said, was was this was his early stamp, and um, yeah, the, like the outline of what was to come is there, yeah. And as well, especially on that particular tune, there's no upright bass; it's a tuba, it's a banjo. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, he moving forward when he got rid of the banjo. Well, because of course, w what was required was dance music for uh, for late night clubbers, you know, and uh, and they did literally call it jungle music, and um, so he was required to an extent to deliver that, but it, it's it's what he did with it, and he, the, I mean, the the Cotton Club, um, he was there for ten years with a gap in the middle. Um, and you can you can really hear th how he develops and how his uh, his concept broadens as it goes through. I don't know about it, uh, I was saying earlier on about like there's so much recorded stuff. The um, there is a there's a series of CDs called Classics which have uh, assembled nearly all of them. It runs <coughs> to about 50 CDs for the first 10 years of Duke's uh, work. So if you want to go and really check out if you're a, what they call a completist. That's uh, that's what you want to do. Uh, there's a couple in the room, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there's actually a stereo version of that from 1932, which was issued about 30 years ago uh, on the rare label. This is Willie Fagan, folks, by the way. And it is just absolutely sensational. The one thing about East St. Louis Tudor is like they have to imagine it's a chorus that's very uh, yeah. in the front, not wearing very much. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure people have seen the pictures. They had a mirror on the floor, and the dancers were like this. It, 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 was, a, it was a whole effect of uh, these... these uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not a million miles away from the kind of minstrelsy stuff that was happening only 10 years or 20 years previously. Um, very patronizing, but it was out of this that Duke Ellington made his art, you know? Um, we're going to move on now to uh, a track from uh, 1932. Um, to, oh, sorry. Th what I wanted to say was, if, you d if you're not a completist and you don't want to buy a 50 CD box set of Ellington, the, uh, most of what I have chosen tonight is on a, a Columbia record called Duke the Columbia Years, which is a good summation and a, a well-remastered summation of the, of the early stuff. So that's what we're using mostly uh, for these. This is from um, uh, February 1932, um, and the, the, it's, a, it's a very famous song, one of, one of his most famous songs, and this was uh, uh, Ivy Anderson, who was probably the greatest singer that worked with, with Ellington. 
um, and often regarded as the greatest interpreter of, of his uh, tunes. This is interestingly credited both to Ellington and to Irving Mills. Irving Mills wasn't a musician, he was a manager, and he managed to get himself a writing credit on lots of records uh, with people back then. He was getting 50% of Ellington's take at the time on these records. So it was a pretty good deal for him. But in fairness to Irving Mills, he, did, uh, he was the guy that kind of discovered Harold Arlen and Hoagie Carmichael and Dorothy Fields and people like that. So he, he was an important figure in, uh, in Ellington's. And it was he that got Ellington the gig at the Cotton Club. So uh, this is uh, jointly attributed to them. And it's called It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. thinking about was the, like there, there's a lot of cliches in big band arranging but they weren't cliches 
back then he kind of invented them all didn't he I suppose they all had to start somewhere yeah. Yeah, and he's pretty much responsible for all of them I'd say yeah uh, at one point or other um, like again moving on from what the tuba was doing the last one like the one characteristic to that track is the slap bass you know that's frowned upon big time these days like it's more to, more to but they had no amplification they yeah, had to hit know. the beat the shit out yeah, of the bass absolutely. to be yeah. heard I sure yeah. used two, two in some, some cases yeah but um, yeah all the cliches pretty much all yeah and we we had some debate when we were doing the list about uh whether we would play other people playing ellington because he he really is like so covered everybody play has played ellington and there's a few that i would really recommend i love the mccoy tyner playing ellington is a beautiful record that i love but there was one guy that i thought we had to play tonight and he's somebody that we've already covered on wax on and that's Thelonious monk because i think without with no ellington no monk uh, they both were they both were very influenced by um uh, some of the stride pianists that were playing in in harlem at the time james p johnson and um willie the lion smith so we just wanted to uh, we're going to just take a little extract of uh, monk playing the same tune it, it don't mean a thing this is 1955 so much that we could have played of other people playing Ellington but I think uh, and we're going to listen to a bit of Ellington playing piano uh, a little later on but there's huge similarities I think between um, between Monk and, and, and Ellington and they're, they're kind of coming out of the same place but also I thought it was interesting to illustrate just how how many standards he wrote and how many like we, all musicians have spent the last 60 years playing his tunes over and over again. Isn't it interesting how few recordings there are of Ellington playing other people's, other composers' work? Yeah. He, record, he did T for two and something else I can't remember. Very early, Cotton Club days. Right? Stormy weather. That's right. Yeah. And then much, much later, in an effort to bring a new audience in, he was recording um, versions of Beatles tunes. But, but otherwise, Ellington plays Ellington or straight on. Yes. Yeah, and they, they always say the orchestra was his instrument. That was the way he, they, he used to like sit on the bus writing new tunes on pieces of, pa pieces of paper and then he would hand them to Strayhorn or hand them to whoever was doing their um, orchestrating. And that tune would appear on the, the bandstand the next night. So he was incredibly prolific. What was the, who came up with the figure for the number of songs? It's, it's, it's in around 1700, I believe. 1700 yeah. tunes. So 
Yeah. 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 Just, I mean, it, like, it just kept flowing out of him. You know. It, it reminds me of that that line somebody said about uh, Bach. What somebody said to Bach, like, um, how do you come up with so many melodies? And he says, "My dear, the problem is." not stepping on them when I get up in the morning. <laughs> I, I think I think I think Ellington was like that. There was just there was always a new tune, there was always something coming along in his head, you know. Um okay we're gonna move I, I just wanted to uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning we take a break in the middle of these for those of you who don't know. Um so we're we're gonna take a break in, in sort of uh, ten or fifteen minutes. So you can all recharge your glasses um or whatever it is you want to do. Um, we're going to go on to uh, what I mentioned earlier on was like the, the, the band in the in the in the 40s is kind of often regarded as the, the kind of high point in terms of the, the sound of the band, the members of the band and uh, the, 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 the recordings were getting better. Um, this is a, 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 a tune um, that was originally called uh, Never No Lament and that's what it, uh, it, it's called on, on this uh, instrumental recording but you'll all recognize it as don't get around much anymore. Uh, and this is um, from uh, 1940. Yeah, 1940. So this is, uh, don't, yeah, never know lament. <laughs>
Paul, we were talking earlier on about like the the it's kind of textbook, isn't it, for uh, big band arranging, what he's doing there. And I'm I'm thinking like how how many other people sounded like that in the in the kind of decades to follow. Um, yeah, he, he he obviously was a massive influence on, on that particular type of writing. Like um, it wasn't the swing band thing he was doing; it was a completely different thing. Um, like um, he's ma been a massive influence on me personally as an arranger. Um, but it goes back to like what you were saying earlier about stuff that are, are cliches. They're only cliches because they work. Um, they only been been rehashed because every single time they are used because they're completely they, they, they are actually pretty much the essence of big band writing today still. Um, in every contemporary large jazz ensemble, every, everything comes back to that, including to like the voicings he uses and the couplings of, like, I think if, if you create we were on about it today, like the opening of uh, another tune that we're probably going to be listening to in a minute. But like, normally in today's writing, as Fiacre was saying earlier on, we were in the studio earlier on today, and there's one particular tune that Fiacre pointed out where if you were writing and you had a clarinet, a trumpet, and a trombone, you'd voice them clarinet, trumpet, or either or, or put the bone at the bottom, whereas he inverted it to put the trombone really high on the top. Yeah, we're talking about yeah. Mood Indigo, which we're yeah. going to come to later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a, an ex extraordinary uh, combination that he came up with. The trombone is on the top, yeah. the trumpet in the middle, and they're both muted, and the clarinet at the bottom. Yeah. And and he, he liked it so much, he used it uh, several times. Yeah. And I think, yeah. uh, like, even classical composers like Andre Perevin said, he could listen to 20 minutes of Stravinsky and know exactly what was going on, but when he heard that opening bar, a couple of bars of Mood Indigo, mm. he actually couldn't work out yeah. what was happening. What's going on, yeah. So yeah, it's been a massive influence. Well, uh, maybe we move on to that actually, because I have a piece of video. Do you think you could jump to the video of Mood Indigo, Ben? Um, this is a this is a, a lovely piece of video from the early thirties um, um, of uh, them playing Mood Indigo, and you can see the kind of arrangement come together and how he's <coughs> marshalling the the the. Uh, this is uh, Russell Prokop on the uh, the clarinet. You roll it there, Colette.
Willie Cook on the trumpet. Way he looks at the camera at the end, you know. <laughs> Didn't I do well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That intro is extraordinary. Yeah. It's so nothing to do with the tune that's to come. It's just a total bit of virtuoso flash at the beginning. Yeah. But he does it again. I mean that, that wasn't just a one-off. It, it, it turns up on record as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I, I think a piano player who's used to tr being heard over uh, a big band, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't lay out or lay back <laughs> on the... Uh. So um, I actually thought that it would be interesting to compare this to another version of Mood Indigo. Um, in, um, in 62... Uh, so Duke, d he did, a, he did a lo uh, quite a number of really interesting collaborations. Everybody wanted to play with him. And uh, we're going to listen to a couple of them tonight. And uh, this one was with Coleman Hawkins. Um, in 1962, and uh, I think that the New York Times review of the, uh, of the album at the time said, one of Ellington's great albums, one of Hawkins's greatest albums, and maybe one of the greatest albums of the whole 1960s was this uh, Duke Ellington meets Coleman Hawkins. And I thought it would be interesting for us to listen again to, the, to Mood Indigo 20 years later, 30 years later, um, 
and this was uh, this was for Impulse. This is Rudy Van Gelder at the so the, the sound has got a lot better. This is Rudy Van Gelder at uh, engineering and Bob Teal producing. Um, Johnny Hodges is there. Ray Nance is there, but uh, it's Coleman Hawkins and it's Duke Ellington, Mood Indigo. I don't know why I'm looking over there because it's not a mini
such a beautiful beautiful performance on the saxophone from Coleman Hawkins but I, what I also notice about that is how the tune is present throughout the however far Coleman Hawkins goes Mood Indigo is still there all the time the, the, like the, the scoring of the accompaniment com, comes back to what I was saying earlier on as well like if, as a trombone player if I'd have seen that sheet music I had a heart attack because you're playing top C's and top D's and top D flats and double piano for what was that? Best parts of five minutes. Like Lawrence Lawrence Brown's playing on that is like obviously it's Corman Hawkins that's Steven today, but as a trombonist even Lawrence Brown's sound on that like influenced trombone players for decades because it's no more it's no more of this what's it called gut bucket plunger yeah. mute stuff. It's just absolute velvet long tones at the absolute yeah. outer reaches of the instrument. Like, you know. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting Fierker, the way you could hear him he was obviously having new arranging ideas as he was sitting there because there was some beautiful yeah, comping yeah. going on yeah, yeah. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a, a, a break now for a minute but before that I, ha I have a little piece of video that I want you to see um, so uh, Clark Terry was in the Ellington band for many years and was one of the great trumpeters uh, with, with Ellington and we, I was talking earlier on about like I think one of his great achievements and the, one of the reasons that, that the, the band had such longevity was how he treated his musicians. Because he really respected them and he really l wrote music to make them sound good. And uh, this is Clark Terry talking about the way uh, Ellington worked with, with his musicians. Hey, you. Well, he's playing what they call oh. a compliment to That's the soul. one, sorry. He never repeated. My fault. That's a really good clip as well. Then we're gonna we're gonna look at that after the break. But uh, <coughs> I wonder can we find that? Uh, there you go. That's actually play the band the way he wanted the, the way average cat played his instrument. He played the band. Uh, just to give you an idea, he said to me once when we were making a record called "A Drum Is a Woman," uh, and uh, it was about New Orleans and the Mardi Gras and all that and. Uh, he said to me, he says, uh, sweetie, you're going to portray the role of Buddy Bolden. So I said, well, maestro, I don't know anything about Buddy Bolden. He said, not too many people around who know much about Buddy Bolden. He says, oh, sure. He said, Buddy Bolden was suave. He was debonair. And said he was just a marvelous person. He loved uh, beautiful ladies around him. He had a big sound. He said he 
tuned up in New Orleans and across the river in Algiers, he would break glasses. He was so powerful. He loved diminishes. And uh, so he says, you know all these things. I said, sure. He said, you are Buddy Bowden. Play me some diminishes and some bent notes. So I started playing. He said, that's it, that's it. <coughs> and that's exactly what came off on the record, the drum is a woman. <laughs> so he could, he could masterfully uh, psych you into doing exactly what he wanted you to do. <laughs> Okay, so we're, we're going to take a break. Um, after the break, we're going to listen to some uh, Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington playing duo. Um, we're going to listen to Money Jungle, which is the, the fantastic uh, trio record he made with Charles Mingus, and that's why I have that, that clip there, and uh, a few other gems. So uh, fill your glasses, and we'll see you in 10 minutes. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, so we were talking before the break. I, I want to play this uh, this beautiful duo um, of all the, the the musicians that that are associated with Ellington. As I say, it, it, they're, they're, it's a group of musicians, and I think often we need to think about groups that way. The same can be said of Miles Davis's groups that they're it's a, Miles Davis is a name for a load of records that came out with by a group of musicians, and they all make huge co contributions. But the, the towering contribution to, to, to Ellington's um, world was made by the great Billy Strayhorn. Um, and Billy Strayhorn wrote Take the A Train that we heard at the beginning, and he wrote some really beautiful tunes that are, that are still being played today. But uh, we're going to start with um, a, a, a kind of rarity, really, which is um, a, a record that was, that was called... Um, uh, great times on Riverside in um, it, it recorded in 1950 and this is a duo this is uh, Monk or Monk this is <laughs> Ellington and uh, Strayhorn uh, playing a piano duo the tune is Tonk <laughs> Thank you. 
I love about that is they are obviously having a load of fun playing with each other and and bouncing off each other. And uh, I was I was thinking, um, Fiacre, like arrangers, people who arrange for for bands and singers and stuff like that, they play the piano a certain way. Yeah. Do you think? Yes, absolutely. Um, but you know what's extraordinary about that track? It, it, it's the most European uh, of, of Duke Ellington Stroke, Strayhorn's music. Uh, it strikes me that Ellington is so American in his language, but that sounds like Poulenc. It sounds like you know West European. It sounds there's bitonality. There's it's quite dissonant at times. I just I think it's an extraordinary piece of music. Do you, do you think that's the influence of Strayhorn? Could be. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, it just in terms of like the so the like so Billy Strayhorn and I, I do want to talk about him for 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 a little while because he's so important to Ellington, and I mean he was an interesting character um, in in so many ways. Um, he was gay and in a time when really wasn't that it was hard to be out, and he was kind of re retiring kind of guy. So I think he found his his place with the Ellington band. And Ellington came to rely on him more and more. We were talking earlier on and, uh, about how Ellington, whether or not he credited everybody with th who wrote his songs, but I think he, he did come to really uh, like rely on Strayhorn and give him the credit for the tunes that he had written. Yeah, hugely he relied on, on Strayhorn, but, but uh, often he was using Strayhorn as his arranger. And I think... Uh, for a while, it, it suited Strayhorn very well because he he had this sort of patron, as it were. Um, but it was not an exactly a, uh, an equal partnership, and I think eventually Strayhorn became rather fed up with being second dog or whatever, second fiddle, and, and he d left for a while. It partly may have been due to the fact that Ellington wasn't always generous about attributing what to Strayhorn what Strayhorn had contributed. Um, so I think that might have been the parting of the ways. However, the, the parting didn't last that long and Strayhorn came back on more favourable terms, should we say. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, w so we're, we're going to listen to uh, another piece um, that, 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 that is, is co-written by, by the pair of them. This is an interesting album from uh, the, the mid-50s when uh, he did a suite of tunes uh, inspired by Shakespeare. And it's called Such Sweet Thunder. It's a, it's a really beautiful album. And um, this is, uh, this, this is uh, a, 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 as I say, a co-composition by, by the pair of them. And Strayhorn did the orchestration for the whole album. And I think it really is one of the records that has his fingerprints on it, particularly. Um, so uh, this is Star-Crossed Lovers from Such Sweet Thunder. Johnny Hodges after this, because that's the sound of Johnny Hodges we're hearing now.
So we were talking earlier on about how he wrote for particular members of the group and uh, how they stayed so long and that that defined the, the sound of the band. And uh, so that was uh, Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone there and an incredibly distinctive sound. And clearly that piece was written for him. And it's not just any alto player that could stand out and 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 sound like that, Paul. No, not, not at all. Sure, Johnny Hodges is probably one of the most distinctive alto sounds to this day. Yeah. Uh, but what was really interesting about that arrangement and what Strayhorn did, I th- I th- I personally think Strayhorn was a better arranger than Duke. Uh, um, like he came from a classically trained background, so his I th- I personally think that his use of counterpoint and stuff like that, like. You could, could notice like, in the background of that, like wailing saxophone. It, he used to use the trombones always, always as this kind of rising or, mm. or, or uh, rising or uh, descending kind of chromatic counterpoint that always kind of drags your ear away from what's going on. And as well, his use of Harry Carney at the bottom and put all on the, the baritone, like all these kind of really distinctive runs that to this day are still cliches, like uh, never like the baritone saxophone kind of leaning towards the downbeat over a triplet or something rather than just yeah. clunking but yeah get back to Johnny Hodges the saxophone sound th- I think the saxophone today sounds the way it does the alto saxophone particularly especially with its use of vib in a, in a lead in a lead context in a big band it sounds like that today basically because Johnny Hodges sounded like that yeah Willie you wanted to to, to talk about the the, the feminine side of the Like he wasn't one to hold back, he was here. If, you know. if, you, if you've seen Phil Martin, he looks like he's asleep. His <laughs> nickname, was, oh, by the way, his real main nickname was Rabbit because I don't know whether it's because he liked carrots or because he was very common in front teeth. But yeah. either way, he was always known as, as Rabbit. But Johnny Hodges would stand up and he would think he was asleep and he would put that arm in his mouth and he, he could sing. Oh, absolutely. As I said, you can just like, hear that's it. Like, yeah. That's like a woman's voice singing. Mm. It was. It, it was It was, but like it, it, he got all the guys together. Yeah, but it was. And he pulled the whole. Thing it, it was, but like in a musical context, like you in know. Musical context. It, it was. It was more of a mosaic approach. Yeah. That the links were always, yeah. to my ear, a bit dubious, you know, yeah. and not just to my ear, like like. Yeah. I just, I'm just, from a very personal opinion, like the the individual ideas were amazing, but the links between them always didn't really, link up, and they were all kind of felt flat. Whereas, yeah. uh, Strayhorn's arrangements are completely continuous. Yeah. Stories about 
Oh really? Well, interesting. Interesting, you should say that because that's a very good segue. And thank you, Willie. Uh, well, I was talking earlier on about there are there are some really really uh, special collaborations because of Duke's stature that uh, the, the record companies wanted to put him with other guys that were uh, of similar stature because they sold records clearly, and. Uh, in 62 he made a, a a record with john coltrane um and it's 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 just called duke ellington and john coltrane um this is also one of the uh, iconic ellington tracks um if we have it lined up do we ben great um this is um the, for me i love this as well because this is an example of duke ellington playing with elvin jones my hero drummer and it's kind of it's it, what's interesting is the 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 kind of the so uh, Coltrane and Elvin are coming from the the post bop scene, and uh, they have a different groove to the, the the way Ellington would play. And it's quite interesting to hear how they 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 interact on this track. This is in a sentimental mood. It's f this is really famous. Every, every saxophone player listens to this to death.
So, um, in, in, in a sentimental mood. I what I find interesting there is that you can clearly hear Alvin <coughs> and Duke hearing this at the time in a different way and, and trying to figure out. And of course, Elvin is trying to like defer to Ellington and trying to figure out what Ellington is doing. But it doesn't, it's not entirely, uh, they don't exactly uh, knit. It's called, the style is called, Where the Fuck Are We? <laughs> 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 yes. I, I, lo I love Ellington's uh, ostinato um, accompaniment throughout yeah. most of that. And actually, when I wrote to you to suggest a track, I, I typed obstinato by mistake, which I think is an interesting <laughs> word. Anyway, it is quite obstinate. <laughs> it works really well, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought he gave it up when he, when he wasn't getting the doubling fee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. actually true, yeah. Yeah. I've never been convinced that when Elvin goes to double time, Duke wasn't either expecting it nor wanted it. No, that's what I'm saying. They're, it, it sounds to me like they're both trying to figure out it, how and to. And at the end of it, when he's when yeah. when, when he's actually kind of like laying down those last four chords before it goes back to that initial A, he's like saying, "We're going fucking back." That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Um, so listen, there, there's there's one Irish musician that deserves to be mentioned uh, this evening. And I wish he was with us, uh, and he passed a few years ago. And that's Chas Meredith, um, or known to uh, those of you who may have listened to his radio programs as Rock Fox. And uh, Chas was uh, a, a world-leading authority on Ellington's music, and did uh, lots of transcriptions of his music. The, there's a generation of, Ar of Irish musicians who remember having Chas charts put in front of them and very specific instructions on this is the way the Ellington band did it. And he really was meticulous and, uh, and, and his knowledge of uh, Ellington was compendious. And I was lucky enough to interview Chaz a few times um, and uh, talk to him about uh, when Ellington came to, uh, to Dublin, because he played in Dublin. Um, we're trying to figure out, I, we think it's a couple of times, but certainly once in the, in the 70s. And uh, I just wanted to Willie to remind us of the what happened when the a phone call came. First of all, he did two shows. Uh, it was in the Carlton. It was a bit disappointing because um, he just done a sacred concert in uh, Westminster. And uh, put it this way, Paul Gonzalez, who was known to um, fall asleep, etc., on the thing, had one of his moments with somebody with a needle thrust in and didn't come to Dublin, which was a great disappointment. Um, it was, it was, it was a good, good enough band. Johnny Cole. It wasn't an unusual event with the Ellington band, though, was it? Like, the, I mean, because he, he, he insisted on working with the guys that he wanted to work with, but they didn't always show up. No, and there was, there was frequently, it, it, it was known the band would be half there at the start he, time. He, he always worked around. Yeah. He was incredibly proven, yeah. etc. So he actually had been just told, in fact, I have since found out that he had cancer and did terminal cancer. He, he died so he died in 74, yeah. He died <coughs> I persuaded my wife to be that we needed to see both shows, you know, and catch the last. So there was an early and a late. Yes. So of course um, we were in uh, just across 
bar was absolutely packed. Every jazz band in Dublin and for, for from Cork as well and from all the country. We're all, we're all <laughs> and we're all stuck in our minds, you know, getting ready for the second show. When uh, the poor barman, uh, we suddenly heard shouting coming from behind the bar, and um, the barman was saying, um, "Call here for Mr. Ellington." Mr. Ellington, please come to the phone. It was probably the promoter wanted them back on stage. <laughs> no, no, he's been in the best suite in the Gresham upstairs. Yeah. You know, Duke, Duke always, and um, of course the other thing about Duke is yeah. these specific meals, grapefruit juice, fillet steak, fillet steak, etc. And it, this meal could not vary. You know, yeah. Well, I know who was in the suite with him because that Charles interviewed him for the radio. Uh, we've Charles tried, there, we've yeah. tried to track that tape down, but can't. It's not. Uh, oh. No, it seems to have disappeared. But Chaz was up in the suite interviewing him. But of course, the funny thing was that uh, RTE wanted uh, a kind of a celebrity interview about what's it like to be Duke Ellington. And Chaz had started his interview by apologizing to Duke that he was going to have to ask him these questions. And they rushed through those before they got down to it. Now, in Satendall, what was the second line? You know, because what, what Chaz wanted was information about the, about the music, you know. And he then went and hung with the, the, the other musicians yeah. and, and got lots of information from them as well. But he was in so London the week before Michael Parkinson interviewed him. That's right. That's and on YouTube if anybody wants to check well it Michael out. Michael Parkinson has a lovely story. But Michael Parkinson at the time started to grow his hair long, etc. And that was kind of trendy. And um, they introduced Duke Ellington and I said, this is Michael Parkinson. And he just kind of turned around and said, where's the guy who's going to interview me? Because he didn't accept it. Yeah. yeah. It's an extraordinary interview, by the way. Yeah, no, as I say, it, like, it's, 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 in, it's interesting that with, with some of the musicians that we've covered, there's very little in terms of, of interviews with them because they were kind of marginal to mainstream society. You know, people like Monk, or even people like Coltrane. But Duke Ellington was a major celebrity. And there are endless in interviews and uh, documentaries. He was fated at the White House by Richard Nixon, you know. So uh, if you're interested in, in researching Ellington, there's lots out there. Um, I found this next clip that I want to play is, um, and you've already had a sneak preview, but uh, w you were talking there about the way he comps on that, uh, the Coltrane record. Mm -hmm. And uh, this next record that I want to play is, is uh, Money Jungle, uh, which is, uh, that's one cover, and we have the other cover as well. But anyway, Money Jungle uh, is certainly to, to musicians of my generation a, a really important record. Uh, Charles Mingus and Max Roach, who would have been two of the kind of lines of the, of the new thing, playing with Ellington. And it's very loose. It's a very loose and a very free kind of uh, session. It doesn't sound like there was much uh, rehearsal. Um, famously, Mingus and th there was some uh, tension between Mingus and Ellington on the, the session. And this is despite the fact that Mingus idolized Ellington. But uh, he was a difficult man to get on with. I don't know who was here at the last one, at the, uh, the Wayne Shorter one, because we happened to have Mingus's son in the room last, for the last wax on, Eric Mingus. 
and he was talking about uh, uh, his father. It's amazing to sit in a room with somebody saying, my dad, and he's talking about Charles Mingus. So um, this bit, uh, the, I, I, so I want to play you this little clip first, which is Mingus talking about how Duke Ellington approached comping. Comping being what, uh, for civilians in the room, comping is what uh, the piano player does behind the solo or to accompany a solo. It's, it's a, a shortened version of a company. Comping. Hey, you know, when he's playing what they call accompaniment to the solos, he never repeats his chords. Most piano players, which is very sad and that's a drag to me because <laughs> I happen to have been lucky enough to play with Duke and with Art and with Bud Powell. They never repeat their comp. Once the guy says, if it's A flat seven, they have one voice in for it. And if it says G seven, they have one for that, maybe two. Three, I'm lucky. But Duke would have this monk too. Ding, two notes and out of the card. Next time, three in the same card. Sometimes ten. And sometimes one in unison. And with a melody. And it's just continually creative background behind the solo. Duke can sit on a piano alone and 20 minutes or 10 minutes and play, play you a symphony. He'll play eight bars that people think is over with, and he'll play 29 bars, and he'll play a bit of the first middle part of eight bars he played already, and he'll play something else you haven't heard. And he goes back and plays and recapitulates and plays without, this is improvisation, because he, he can do that and stop and start all over again. He is an improvisational genius. So, um, the tune I want to play from uh, from Money Jungle, and we're going to talk a, a little bit about the composition afterwards, because you have strong opinions on this. Uh, I'll remind you what your strong opinions are at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this is a, a a tune that was often attributed to Ellington, but 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 in fact was not his tune, but uh, he bought it off the the composer who was Juan Tizol, and uh, this is. This used to be very famous as if you were auditioning for a band. I don't know if this is still true when you're auditioning for the New Ireland Jazz Orchestra, but th when you were auditioning for a band and you were a drummer, this is the tune that you play. I actually have a very, very funny story about this tune. It's nothing to do with Monk, but it has to do with a big band that I play in Dublin, the Hollows Big Band. This tune was used in the, in the movie Whiplash. So I should tell you the name of the tune just before we move on any further. It's Caravan. So basically in the movie Whiplash, there's this really famous big band arrangement that they use of this tune that's right yeah and it starts off with this really big huge open drum solo and throughout the movie it's the kid trying to nail the drum solo you know yeah so mark wilde who runs the big band in in dublin gets a phone call or an email or something from this guy who says he was on the soundtrack of the movie but not in the movie and he was going to be in dublin and could he sit in with the band you know so mark says yeah we have that chart just let us know when you're in the room by all means, get up and play, you know. Never did any background information. Your man, your man got up, sat in with the band in the middle of the gig, and about a bar in, it sounded like my two three-year-olds messing on a kit. Yeah. Turns out he was the hand model. <laughs> <laughs> From the, for, for doing the close-ups with the sticks. <laughs> so he had a lovely pair of hands, he but he couldn't play the drums. That <laughs> pedicure set of hands. What, what I love about that is, though, he obviously had a, a neck as well oh, as a pair of hands yeah, yeah, to absolutely. want to get up and do Fair that. Later. 
But uh, yeah, that was that's well, mad. nothing to do with. So uh, well, look, they, I mean, uh, I would encourage people to go and listen to some of the earlier, uh, um, like big <coughs> big band versions of Caravan as well, because it, it really is a famous thing. And I mean, what uh, what Tizol did was bring the kind of Spanish tinge into the band, and. Uh, it, it, like certainly Latin music became more important in later years for, for a, a lot of jazz musicians but this is one of the very early examples of, of like Latin rhythms in so do go and listen to those but the version of it that I've chosen to play today is the, is the version with Mingus and Max Roach from, uh, from Money Jungle this is 1962 so this is the same year as the, the Coltrane record um, so this is Money Jungle and this is Caravan like <laughs>
tell me what's that note? It's not in the tonic. I think, I mean, what, what's astonishing about that is that that is 1962 and it still sounds fresh. It still sounds uh, adventurous and loose. And it's a, it was amazing um, chutzpah to get into a room with, with Mingus and, and Max Roach, two very strong personalities, uh, and to, to play the piano with, with so much freedom and so much abandon. And I, I encourage, uh, certainly for me, that's the, that's the touchstone record, the, uh, Ellington record. I love that record, and uh, I encourage you to go and listen to the, to the whole lot of it. Um, guys, any uh, thoughts on Money Jungle? When you're on about saying there was tension between Mingus and, uh, and Ellington during that session, I'm fully convinced he was playing down that law on the piano to swamp To get him out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fully convinced. Because you never hear you never hear. Well, there, and there's some, other, there's some others of the tunes where you can hear Mingus' bass line for the whole tune is one note. Yeah, and he's, he play, sits and he's, and he's playing quite high up in the register yeah. as well yeah. to find some space. Yeah. 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 He's way up near the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Just to find some room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, the, the, I think what's interesting, though, about that record as well is like uh, that. I mean, he obviously felt some freedom in making a trio record because Ellington, f for the whole of his career, stayed true to the idea that he was playing for an audience, and he always wanted to put on a show. And I wanted, I wonder, can we find the Ben this clip? That it was the first of the clips that I had. <coughs> um, it's Ellington IV re people with ears. Do you see that? Sorry about this, guys. I'm throwing stuff at, at Ben. It's not his fault. Uh. This is a, a, a piece of interview with, with Ellington, where, and I thought it was interesting, and, and just to, uh, to, to finish off the evening, um, uh, we're going to actually play a piece that is dedicated to him rather than a piece of Duke Ellington uh, at the end. But I wanted to... Sorry, I'm supposed to be on the mic. I wanted to, 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 to have a look at this. This is a really excellent 1967 documentary called On the Road with, with Duke Ellington, which is really worth checking out, and it's free on YouTube, and I encourage you to, to look at that. But this is him explaining, uh, apropos, like, uh, you know, this, this idea of um, that the music is, is, well, you'll hear what he's saying. Why, why do I need to set it up? Have a listen. It's because Duke Ellington is a modern composer of such range and depth subtlety and complexity that many of those who know him best are saddened to hear him playing the same old tunes endlessly demanded by the big audiences oh these are the people with the ears and my major interest is people who have ears without the people who have ears we don't mount to anything we're not working for anything 
we're working, we could be very well sit home and write music and then play it on the piano and listen to it. Or if we found musicians who were sufficiently enthusiastic to work without money, we could have a nice uh, uh, workshop rehearsal orchestra or something like that for laughs, you know. But that isn't very kicky. You, know? you play for yourself and you play for the people. You play for everybody. You don't want to be any nicer to yourself than you are to the people. I think that's very interesting um, and it, it contrasts with the attitude of what you might call the modernists that came after him uh, in terms of that he never forgot that he was working for the audience and uh, he, put, he, always, he put on a show on, on, and the, even with the, the, the stuff like the, the collaborations, maybe aberrations if you like from that, but to his, to, to his last record he was an entertainer as well as a, an artist. And it's an interesting, I think, an interesting distinction. Um, there's, there's a wonderful footage, a bit of footage, where Duke is uh, playing an intro. And he does, sorry, I can't. He sort of does a flash bit, and then he looks at the audience. <laughs> he does another flash, and he looks at the audience. But he's just he's so <laughs> conscious of, of the effect that he might have on the audience. And ha you know. <laughs> yes, yeah. but I think as well that's, that's making the connection. You know, I mean, I think it's a really important aspect of because interestingly, the, the last tune that we're going to play tonight is um, Miles Davis. Um, and interestingly, Miles uh, didn't engage at all with the audience, mm. but he did learn a lot from from Duke. And like I said at the beginning, he, he, he as far as he was concerned, the history of jazz could be expressed in those two words or in those four words, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. But um, in, um, in 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 fifty seven. My, well, so Miles worked with, a, with, with Gil Evans, who was a, a, a great arranger and uh, very influenced by Duke Ellington. And they paid their tribute to him on a, a fantastic record called Miles Ahead in 57 with a Dave Brubeck tune that was dedicated to Duke Ellington. And uh, I thought this might be an appropriate way to, to talk about the, the legacy that Ellington leaves uh, amongst all the musicians that followed after him. Um, and, and particularly Miles Davis, who of course has this towering influence on, on everything that happened. So, like I say, I mean, Ellington is the trunk of the tree. Um, and I think what, what, what I hoped that we would do tonight was try and hear this music again with fresh ears, because it's, so, it's been so plundered by you know, Hollywood for like nightclub scenes and so many second-rate uh, arrangers and composers have come after Ellington and copied them that that sound has become devalued in a way. And it's, 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 it's nights like tonight and listening with, with, with these two fine gentlemen that you get to kind of hear Ellington again. And I hope that we've managed to do that tonight. And I thank you all for your attention. Does anybody have any um, questions or... Alan? Or observations, indeed, or abuse. Great. Oh, thank you. Yes.
Is this a gig that's coming up, or is this a gig in the past? Four years ago, I. I, I should point out, those of you who don't know, this is Alan Smith, wi without whom there would be a lot less jazz in Ireland, because Alan is responsible for putting on a lot of the best gigs that ever happened in this country. But this is one that, hasn't, that happened four years ago, Alan. It happened at the okay. yeah. Oh, so that's why we had a chance to go and see it. Yeah, I think it was 2014. Right. I think yeah. so. It was in the yeah. 69 O'Connell Street Theatre, wasn't it? Yeah, in, 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 in Limerick. Yeah. 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 Yes. Very good, very good. Well done, well done. Ch Chaz definitely, Chaz definitely deserves to be remembered tonight, and uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was a life worth saving, Alan. <laughs> so thanks to you as well. Does anyone else have any observations or uh, questions, abuse, comments? Well, uh, it, it's been a pleasure uh, listening with you all, and uh, thanks for coming along. Alan is right. I, I usually finish up by saying that we all love listening to records, but this music is a live music, and there are, are, there are Irish musicians playing now. We are honoured to have the great Hugh Buckley here with us at the back of the room. Hugh, have you got any gigs you want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> and there you see the problem <laughs> nobody's got any gigs but uh, no but but seriously like this, this is live music and have you got an IMC gig you want to plug is that what you're looking at me for the next oh the next wax on um, but th this is live music and it's about musicians in the, in the present and you've got to put yourself in a room with musicians that are improvising to really understand what this music is about so do go and check out what's around. There's a great, uh, uh, there's a new group called the Dublin Jazz Co-op that put on gigs in this room on Sunday afternoons. Some really, really high-level musicians in a room this size is an amazing experience to have. So I do encourage you to check that out. Um, I think their Facebook page is Dublin Jazz Co-op. Um, I'd like to thank Improvise Music Company for putting this wonderful uh, event on. And IMC put on great music, and go and check out their uh, website, which is improvisedmusic.ie. Is it? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so, sorry, yes. Yeah, I, you just, uh, we're visitors. I'm from London, Suzanne's room. You're welcome. Thank you, and it's been a great pleasure. We bought this, yeah. you know, at the last minute before we oh. came. Thank you. Um, but you didn't actually introduce yourself. So, <laughs> 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 so sorry, I, I'm Cormac Larkin. I'm the jazz critic in the Irish Times, and I'm also a drummer. So, uh, uh, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank the panel as well Paul Donnelly and Fiacre Trench. Um, so, so yeah, to play us off the stage, I have employed uh, a certain Miles Davis, 
and um, this is Gil Evans. This is big band. I think you can really hear the, uh, the influence of Ellington in all that Gil Evans did, but obviously he's doing it explicitly here and paying his homage. And certainly if you don't know this record miles ahead, that's something to go at home and check out as well, because if you like big band music, this is the, the uh, well, I can't say it's the height after we've been listening to Ellington all this evening, but anyway, this is Miles. Oh, uh, I should really have notes. Um, <coughs> the, all the tunes that we played tonight, I've put them together a Spotify playlist. Who here does Spotify? You heathens. <laughs> <laughs> No, in fact, it, it, uh, I have been resisting it for a long time, but I've just, uh, just started doing it myself as well. So all of, the, all of what we played tonight is on a Spotify playlist that uh, IMC will share via their um, Facebook feed, so you can go and check out, including some that we didn't get time to listen to tonight. Is that um, the yes, there are playlists for the other previous ones as well. Um, and and for those of us who have managed to avoid Facebook so far... Congratulations, sir. <laughs> yes, well done. Good. Yeah, well, would you find it via the website? Don't they go straight into Spotify? Yeah. No, he's on The eminent squeeze in the corner, by the way, is the director of IMC, Ken Talin, who is keeping himself out of, the, out of shot. Um, I want to thank Ben Bix for, yeah, yeah. for doing the engineering tonight. Um, and like I say, I want to thank Aoife and Ken from, from IMC for, for making this uh, happen in the first place because it's, it's great. And, and thank you all for coming with your ears and, and listening with us. Um, so, yeah, that's it. We're going to listen to The Jupe by Dave Brubeck, played by Miles Davis and Gil Evans Orchestra. Live.
Okay. Unfortunately, the, the, the segues, the, the, all that album goes, one track goes into the other, so we just have to cut it. So that's it, everybody. Thank you.